Uh, We're going to be in Joel chapter 2 this morning. Joel 2, if you're not uh, familiar, we're currently in a study of the Old Testament minor prophets. We've been in this study for the better part of this year. Um, We're nearing the end of this, but today uh, we're going to wrap up the book of Joel. The next few weeks through the end of the year, we're going to move into a series surrounding Advent, leading us up to Christmas And then the first couple of months of next year, we'll come back, we'll finish our study of these 12 books in the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets, and then we will get into the Gospel of John for most of next year. So really excited about that, looking forward to it. This is our text today, Joel 2, starting in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions." Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is the word of the Lord. So... Uh, When I was in high school in the late 1990s, leading up to the year 2000, as many of you will remember, there was a frenzy of activity around the millennium. Um, A lot of this had to do with the significance of the milestone. 2,000 years is a long time. Uh, But there also developed sort of this whole cottage industry of books and movies and media that had to do with like prophecy about the millennium. Uh, mostly surrounding what was thought of as being the end times or the end of time. And much of this was not Christian in nature. Like I remember uh, being in line at the grocery store and there just being magazines about the prophecies of Nostradamus. Uh, Nostradamus was this like French astrologer who was, you know, sort of putting these prophecies out there in the 1500s and he claimed to be able to predict the future. Um, Much of the secular predictions about the future seemed dark and dire. During that same time period in 1997, you guys may remember, some of you may remember, there was also this weird event with the case of a group that was known as the Heaven's Gate group, the Heaven's Gate cult. How many people remember this? The Heaven's Gate cult who believed they could be transported to heaven aboard the Hale-Bopp comet that happened to be passing by the earth at that time. And like 39 people participated in this mass suicide, all dressed in matching jumpsuits. And it just left everybody sort of baffled and stunned. It was just this bizarre event that took place kind of in the middle of all of this uh, hand-wringing and trepidation about the coming year 2000. Um, Add into that uh, the whole dynamic of fear surrounding what was thought of as the Y2K event, like this idea that we're going to get to midnight on New Year's Eve and computers around the world are just going to shut down and planes are going to be falling out of the sky and economic systems are going to crash overnight and electrical grids are going to go down. And and this whole thing just, just took on a life of its own, even though there was not consensus among experts as to whether or not this was even a thing, like if it even actually would happen or take place. 
And so January 1st, people were fully expecting to just wake up to, you know, devastation around the world. There were really dire predictions about what could happen. And many saw this as potentially the beginning of the end, the beginning of the apocalypse. And so you had people who were storing up food, who were buying generators, right, who were withdrawing all of their money from banks, who were converting their money into gold, like, you know, just all kinds of stuff. It was full on Mad Max in many ways. And you might be inclined to think, well, surely Christians wouldn't engage in any of that silliness. Like, our hope is in Christ, our future is secure, so surely we wouldn't buy into conspiracy theories. Christians would never do that, right? Well, Christians got wrapped up in this stuff just as much as everybody else. And um, we even developed our own sort of sub-industry of apocalyptic literature and movies. You had televangelists like... Jim Baker and John Hagee, who were writing books left and right about so-called biblical prophecy. A lot of it sounded more like astrology, sounded more like Nostradamus in nature. But the real juggernaut from this time period was what were known as the left-behind books. How many of you guys have read any of the left-behind books? Yeah, we've got several people in the room. Uh, Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins are the guys that wrote these books, and they were fictionalized, and I stress the word fictionalized. They were fictionalized accounts of the apocalypse that read like action-adventure novels. Um, And I read several of them, like many people. As of 2016, uh, these books, the original book series, had sold over 80 million copies. Over 80 million copies. And just just to give you a little context for that number... Um, the only books that could be considered Christian fiction, and I wouldn't even put them in the same camp, like this is, these are more like literature, but the only books to outsell the Left Behind series are Pilgrim's Progress, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and The Lord of the Rings, which are just in a totally different like caliber of, of like, creative literature from the Left Behind books. But, but that's just how massive the sales of this book were, were leading up to the year 2000. Um, it was a massive cash cow, and it spurred a lot of other stuff that came from it. There were the Left Behind movies, which God bless you if you've seen those, because they're not good. Um, there was apparently a left behind kids book series that had like 40 books in it. And apparently I'd love to find this. I've never seen it, but apparently there was a left behind video game as well that I have not come across. Um, Tyndale house, uh, who was the publisher, one of the largest Christian publishers in the world said at the height of the left behind series, sales represented over 50% of their entire annual revenue. They published the Bible, among other things, and this was over 50% of their annual revenue. It was unbelievably huge. But there was a big problem with the Left Behind series, and the problem was this. It was fiction, and yet it was received by many Christians as being like gospel truth. Not as being fiction, but as being 100% biblical truth. Today, the prophet Joel gives us a glimpse into the future, but it isn't 
people vanishing. It isn't planes falling out of the sky. It's something else. We begin today at the end of chapter 2, and as we talked about last week, there are a number of different perspectives on this book of Joel based on different assumptions of when it was possibly written. But, but just, just so you're aware, here's my basic take on the book of Joel. There are three chapters here in this book, but as an aside, for most of church history, people have not engaged with the scriptures according to chapter and verse, because those things were not added to the scripture until the 1500s as just a way of making it easier to engage. For most of church history, people have engaged with a book like Joel as just one book, you know, not with chapters and with verses. And, and yet, there are three sort of clear sections to the book of Joel. And in section one, which we talked about some last week, in section one, it's as if Joel the prophet is looking back into the past to a previous day of the Lord, a day on which God's power was seen by the people. And, and on that previous day of the Lord, it was a devastating locust infestation. So Pretty much all of chapter one is about the locust infestation and the devastating effects of that on the land, on the animals, uh, on people as well. People were hungry because of what had happened. So that's chapter one or section one. Then in section two, which is what we spent the bulk of our time on this past week, we're sort of in the present with Joel. Uh, and we're looking back at this locust infestation and what happened, but we're, we're looking at it as a sort of stone of remembrance, like something to remind us that God is all-powerful and that God desires our complete devotion. God desires for us to repent of our sin and to give everything to him as our Lord and King. And so an event like that reminds us we are not in control God is in control. We are not sovereign. God is sovereign. And so the call in Joel 2 is primarily a call to continual repentance, to live in this state of continually submitting yourself before the Lord. But there's also this prophecy in Joel 2 that's about, I think, a not too distant future from the time of Joel, when the Lord would seemingly restore the fortunes of Judah and he would bring about this prophecy where all who call on the name of the Lord would be saved. And then, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, I think section three is largely about the distant future and judgment that is to come down the road, perhaps at the end of time or at the return of Christ. Now, here's the problem with biblical prophecy concerning the end times. There are some things we know for sure. There are some things that we can stand very confidently on. For example, Jesus will return. The Bible is crystal clear on that point. Jesus will return. There will be a judgment of all people, according to the scripture. That seems pretty clear. Also, what seems clear is things are going to go well for those who trust in Christ at the end of time. But then there are some things that we can really only speculate about because we don't have the ability of hindsight or the benefit of hindsight. We can only look to what the scripture says, and much of what the scripture says is highly metaphorical and symbolic. 
And if we're not careful, we will inadvertently conclude that some of our speculation, some of our maybes or our what ifs are actually gospel truth, are actually things that we can confidently stand on in the way that we can stand on things like, well, Jesus is returning, right? And that things are going to go well for those who are in Christ. For example, a very famous passage in 1 Thessalonians says this. This is the Apostle Paul. Paul tells his readers in Thessaloniki, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are are asleep, meaning those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul is writing to this church in Thessaloniki. He's encouraging his readers that Christ will return, and even those who have died already will join together with those who are alive at the time of his return, and together we will be with Christ. That is the primary point that he's making there, that we should be encouraged that those who have died because of illness or old age or persecution or martyrdom, that they're not somehow like missing out on something because Jesus has not returned yet, but instead all who are in Christ will be together with him. So that's the main point. Um, This is describing as well what is known historically as the resurrection of the dead. We proclaim this every week when we say the Nicene Creed, that there will be a resurrection of the dead. We're not talking about Jesus's resurrection from the dead in the creed. We're talking about those who have died before us, a resurrection of actual human beings. Um, This is meant to be a word of encouragement to Paul's readers not to worry, as I said, about those who have died, um, but instead that they are going to rise from the dead and we will all be with Christ together. Unfortunately, though, entire worlds of speculative theology have been born around these verses, particularly when Paul says that we will meet the Lord in the air. So there are views where people will like float off into space when Jesus returns, or in the Left Behind books, people suddenly vanish and their clothes are left in like a neatly folded pile on the floor. And all of that is a bit of a stretch. Remember, the apostles had watched Christ ascend into heaven, right? In their cosmology, as in ours to some extent, we think of God as being up there somewhere. And I think it's quite possible that all Paul's really saying here is one day we're going to see him return just like we saw him leave. And we will be with him. We will join him. And so while some of these other speculative thoughts are not necessarily wrong or bad or sinful, the point is we need to hold them loosely. 
We need to hold them loosely because we're making a conjecture when we say, well, maybe this will happen or maybe this will happen. We have to stand on what we know for sure and not separate ourselves from other people, certainly, because they might hold to slightly different perspectives on what will occur. Now, why are we talking about all of this? It's because the prophet Joel seems to give us a view of what is to come in the future. First, our text today describes a time, like I said, in the not-too-distant future from the time of Joel... But then the next chapter, chapter 3, describes a time that is future, I think, even still for us. Now, whenever we're reading the Old Testament, one of the most important questions we can ask is, does the New Testament say anything about the passage that we're reading or the text that we're digging into? Um, When we're studying the Bible, we want to interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And so turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2, Jesus has ascended into heaven. The apostles are left in Jerusalem, and they've been commanded to wait in Jerusalem for the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. And it's this dramatic event. Pentecost was a holiday in the Jewish faith. And the Spirit of God, according to Scripture, descends, and it looks like tongues of fire and signs and wonders begin happening. Much like what Joel talked about, people are speaking in other languages. Thousands come to follow Christ in this moment. It's a big deal. It's a big day. And then Peter, the apostle, stands up in front of this mass crowd of people that are seemingly from all kinds of different places and preaches this sermon explaining to everyone that what has happened here is not something that we weren't already aware of. Acts 2, starting in verse 14. Look at this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, that means the other disciples, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days, now he quotes Joel, in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So so in his sermon here, Peter makes a clear statement. What you're witnessing right now is what the prophet Joel said would come to pass. God has poured out his spirit and there are signs that are accompanying this, visions and prophecy related to what's happening. But, verse 20, there is still a day of the Lord to come, this great and magnificent day of the Lord that is yet to come. So just a couple of things I want you to notice here. First of all, 
Notice that verse 17, Peter believes he's living in the last days. As he begins to quote the prophet Joel, he he changes the wording, like if you read directly from the Old Testament, he changes the wording just a little bit in saying that in these last days, this will happen. This phrasing is just a bit different, but Peter, if Peter thinks he's living in the last days, then we're surely living in the last days as well. In fact, any time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ could be put into that bucket. Could be called the last days. But then verse 21, there is this promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And this is a promise we hear repeated in the scripture that Paul also claims. Romans 10, and this maybe gives us a little context. In Romans 10, starting in verse 11, Paul says, For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. What's interesting is, I think we read a verse like that, everyone who calls on the Lord shall be saved. I think when we read that verse, we perhaps major on the word saved because we come out of like an evangelical tradition here in America and a sort of a post-revivalism tradition that's very focused on people getting saved. But I have to believe that when Peter and Paul heard this, their focus was actually on the word everyone, on the word everyone, because that is Paul's point in Romans 10. What did he say? There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So he's not just the God of Jews, is Paul's point. He's the God of everyone, everyone who would call on his name will be saved. Saved from what, though? Saved from what? Look with me at Joel 3, beginning in verse 1. Joel 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. On behalf of my people and my heritage is Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. He's saying in those times there is going to come about this judgment. And verse 2, I'm going to gather all of the nations together And I'm going to bring them to this one place, and there I will judge them. And and what he goes on to say from there in verse 2 and 3 is, because there is great sin, like there is heinous activity that has taken place. And if you've been with us for this study of the Old Testament minor prophets, you know that that's not a new idea, right? Like throughout the prophets, the Lord has been 
making the people aware of their sin and calling them to repentance. But he says there's going to come a day where there's going to be this judgment, a gathering of all nations. And this language is very similar to Jesus' own language in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, turn with me there real quick. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes his return for us. Again, what does the New Testament have to say about some of this? What does Jesus have to say about some of this? Starting in verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations... And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king, notice that that's the position he's taking here. He's, he is sitting on his throne, reigning and ruling. The king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. But then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you have done it to the least of these, my brothers, you have done it to me. He then goes on to describe the opposite of this. For those who didn't clothe him or visit him in prison, and those who didn't give him food or drink, he says, truly I say to you in verse 45, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So what is it that we need to be saved from? Well, truly, it is ourselves. We need a redeemer who can undo what we have done. Our sin, our shame pursuing our own way instead of his way. Who can save us from sin and death? The answer the scripture gives us is is only the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. But he doesn't simply want us to like uh, recognize that he's real. He doesn't simply want us to like claim belief in his existence. What he's calling us to is to do exactly what Joel said and what Peter said and what Paul said, which is to call upon him as Lord, to call upon him as our king. This is the faith element here, that we would, yes, believe in his ability to save But that based on that, we would give him our full allegiance, our full loyalty as the sovereign, as the king, as the ruler of the universe. There have been tendencies throughout church history toward what's sometimes called universalism, this idea that, well, God's God's just going to save everybody. 
And, and in the end, you know, that's just what's going to happen. And uh, maybe we've seen this most recently uh, in like Rob Bell, if you're familiar with Rob Bell, um, former pastor. Um, but much like us all like vanishing or floating off into heaven, it's purely speculative. It's very much, uh, well, maybe this could happen or possibly this could happen. And yet it's really hard to read a line like Matthew 25, 46, what we just read, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life, and go, eh, well, eh, God's going to save everybody. There's, there are things that maybe we want to hear, but then there is what is true, and it's pretty clear all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All who recognize his lordship will be saved. But it's also really clear in the teaching of Jesus that there will be many who don't call on the name of the Lord. That the path of Christ is a narrow path. And even in Jesus' own day, like if we were judging the success of Jesus' ministry based on the metrics that we often use for church success today, Jesus had a wholly unsuccessful ministry, right? Way more people walked away from him and abandoned him than said, yes, I will follow you no matter what. And I think that's the point of all of this, this whole book of Joel. I think the point of this is that it would remind us that we are to recognize God's sovereignty, God's power to save us, but not just recognize it, respond to it with repentance and allegiance. That we're not just supposed to say, yes, I believe that, or I intellectually ascribe to that, but that that belief produces a response of faith. And a response of faith that says, I don't fully understand it all. It is mysterious to me in many ways. I don't have all the answers to everything. And yet I'm going to live my life as if that is true. I'm going to live my life as if he truly is king. I'm going to live my life as if the thing that he wants for me is to treat other people as if he is truly king. This whole thing about this, what you've done to the least of these or what you didn't do to the least of these, it's all predicated on the notion that it's been done in his name. That because we recognize the love and grace and mercy that he has poured out to us, that we would be so moved and changed by that, that our interactions with those around us are completely changed as well. This is where we started this morning, right? This love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. As we say all the time, those are not two separate commands. They are deeply intertwined. If you recognize how God has loved you, then it absolutely should have impact on how you love everybody else around you, right? And if you want to love God, you cannot do that if you do not love everyone else around you. These things are wholly connected to each other. And I think this is the point of Joel, that we would recognize God's sovereignty and God's power and that we would respond to it, not just with intellectual assent, but we would respond to it with our lives. Joel basically says, remember the locusts? Remember that thing in the past, that major event that devastated everything? 
You think God wasn't a part of that? You think he didn't have power over that whole thing? At one point in Joel, God refers to the locusts as his army. No, God's above and beyond all of this. He holds power over all of this. You know what is to come in the future? That's going to be him too. That's his power as well. He is the king. And if you decide not to recognize his kingship, or if you conclude he isn't worthy of your allegiance, you do so to your own peril. But through Christ, even though at the judgment we all should be declared guilty, the good news of the gospel is that through Christ, a way has been made for us to somehow be proclaimed innocent. And much like Haggai, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, much like Haggai called the people of Judah to consider their ways, to basically Look at yourself, look at your motives, look at your actions, look at your life. Just like he said, consider your ways. Joel is, I think, saying the same thing to us. Joel is presenting all people at all times with this same command. Consider your ways, look at your life, take an honest inventory. Who is Christ to you? Is he truly your king? Is he truly the one for whom your life revolves around? And if so, turn from your sin continually. Like none of us have perfectly turned from our sin. Like we're all on this road of hopefully increasingly putting sin to death in our lives. But it is a lifelong journey. But we do it not just because we think we can somehow attain moral superiority or moral perfection. No, no, no. We do it because he is king. And because what we're actually trying to do is not just sinless, we're actually trying to be more like him. We're looking to him as the king and we're saying, you are my model. You are the one who I'm seeking to emulate. I'm not doing this just because you've told me to. I'm doing this because I want to live more like Christ. Turn from your sin. Give him your loyalty. Give him your allegiance as king and follow him no matter the cost. This is what Joel was saying. He is more than worthy. And praise the Lord, all those, no matter where you're from, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, all those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's go to him in thanks and praise. Father, we give you glory this morning for the truth of your word. Father, even though there are things in your scripture that are hard or that we may not fully understand, I pray, Lord, this morning that we would rest on the things that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt. And one of those things is the message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ not only came and died and rose from the dead, but he is truly king. And that the call that you've placed on our lives is not just a call to like straighten up and act right. You've called us to actually leave behind the life that we had formerly and to begin a new life where we are increasingly seeking to devote the whole of our being to you as Lord. Father, would you give us not only a firm belief 
in the reality of these things, God, but would you translate that belief into faith, into trust, into loyalty, into allegiance? God, may we be encouraged not only by your word, but also through the church itself, through our life together with other believers. Father, would you lovingly redirect us back onto your path if we have strayed? God, would you bring people around us who point out our sin to us? God, who pray for us, who disciple us, God, who pour into our lives. And may we hold firm, even though there's so much we don't understand, even though there's so much we don't know fully how it's going to play out. May we stand firm on the truth that at the end of time, those who have called on your name will be saved. And not just saved from death, but will be be called your beloved children forever will be adopted into your family, will dine with you at your table forever. God, we give you praise and glory that you love us enough to do that for us through your son, Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, stand with us. Let's sing.